perched in the, in the sort of loft conversion of our house. And the kids shouldn't come up here when they get home from school, and uh, we probably shouldn't hear too much of Bedford sound with the, with the mic, so it should be okay otherwise. No cleaner today. Nope, nope. And I actually, I do hear birds chirping, but I'm not sure if that's on your end or my that, end. That is my end. <laughs> <laughs> does that give it a more natural feel? Oh, it does. It does. Everybody is now picturing this uh, picturesque English village with uh, you sitting there in your cottage with, uh, you know, the uh, uh, lorries rolling by. And uh, yes. I think it's the pigeons pooping under my eaves. <laughs> Rather than the village scene that you described. But well, we'll keep with that. Come on now. This is uh, this theater of the mind here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We're in England. It's supposed to be that's, village, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Exactly. So so anyway, uh, so good. Well, welcome welcome to the podcast. So um, for those of you um, who don't know the, the sound of uh, uh, my uh, uh, colleague's voice, joining us today uh, on the podcast is is John Bassett, and and John has uh, kind of an interesting history. And as we were going over uh, what we'd like to do, what we'd like to cover on the podcast, I think one of the things that I'd like to start with, and this is this is typical when we have a, a guest on the podcast, is just to talk a little bit about their about their background. Um, so so John, why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and and you know please please start all the way back at you know, your, your, um, your undergraduate training and your, and your degree, and then kind of take us through where we are today. And then I'll, I'll jump in, uh, with comments and questions, uh, as you do that. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll try and keep it short for, for the listeners as well. So, um, basically I graduated as a, as a veterinarian in, in New Zealand. Uh, and I can't even think of the date of that. It must have been late 80s. And, uh, uh, of course, as a vet, uh, the first thing you do is go out and, and get your hands dirty. So I, I did that for, for seven years before I kind of thought... Uh, well, actually, I'd seen a lot of my uh, colleagues who were sort of 40-something trying to make a, a, you know, a change to their career, but they had been pretty much railroaded into being a practitioner and uh they would you know could could do nothing else so i i kind of felt that after seven years i did want to do something else um so i joined the uh government and well, so, and so now when you when you say a vet again um i think probably what oh, our, our listeners uh, uh, listeners will think uh, that well, i've been off fighting in some war right? no so. no no they're what they're thinking of is is uh james harriet and all creatures great and small no, that's okay. exactly what they're thinking and and okay. please tell me that's exactly what it was like <laughs> <laughs> well it was a bit like that because i did come to england first up when i graduated so new zealand perhaps obviously doesn't conjure up those sort of english countryside views in our minds but uh, I did come to England and was thrown into the uh, deep end of smallholder um, you know animal health uh, as an animal health practitioner and uh, that was difficult because I think uh, New Zealand was probably a little bit more 
forward in terms of its technology and and here i was sort of crushing animals between you know two bits of wood or something to try and get them to stay still where you carried out some procedure that you uh, uh you know were trying to do that cause some pain to them so i found that a little bit uh, yeah it, it was a little bit james harriet and wow. i did read the james mm-hmm. harriet books and <laughs> Did enjoy them, but of course, practices had moved on a bit from that mm-hmm. uh, from that time. But it, but again, it was a large animal practice, and you were out on farms, I, basically yeah, helping yeah. animals in, in distress. It was a mixed mm-hmm. mixed. Uh, mm-hmm. We did farm animals, we did horses, and we did uh, small animals as well. So it was a good it was a good mixed uh, introduction to to uh, veterinary practice. Uh, in fact, it was down in Epsom, so it was very close to uh, sort of hallowed racing grounds, and we did a lot of uh, trainers, uh, uh, racehorse trainers, um, and it was a bit of a scam, though, to be honest. They uh, they won't want to hear me say that, but, you know, there was a lot of needless work being done, um, you know, money generation uh, following sort of uh, ideas like thou shalt uh, saline drench your horse uh, b- before and after races type type situation, which probably did no good at all, but certainly made the vets money. So I kind of got a little bit disillusioned with that. Huh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, there were some interesting things, and, and I think the, the chance to do quite a lot of different things, and I was certainly thrown into it on my own a lot, uh, despite having uh, colleagues uh, who were around. Everybody seemed too busy to be able to help, so you just had to get on and, and, and learn and do things. So it was an exciting time. Uh, I went back to New Zealand and did uh, some small, went into small animal practice and, and worked another you know, sort of five years for various small animal clinics in New Zealand, didn't go back into large animals. Uh, and then, yeah, as I mentioned, saw a lot of people who were wanting to get out and couldn't and thought I would I would jump and, and went to, to work for the uh, for the government in, a, in, in a, that biosecurity, what was called the Biosecurity Authority, which was looking at the risks of importing animals and animal products and also uh, facilitating the export uh, of those of, of New Zealand animal and animal products. So that was a great time and uh, uh, a small bunch of highly skilled and uh, intelligent uh, veterinary colleagues who, you know, we would get around to uh, solve all the problems over coffee, extended coffee breaks in the morning in, in Wellington, very trendy cafes. And, uh, you know, we, we had a lot of... Um, Vets were very, very much empowered in the, in the ministry back then, and uh, you know we basically uh, were, were running that sort of the biosecurity program and, and what we were, what we decided and what we thought uh, made it into policy. And that was uh, so it was a fantastic time, uh, and that's where I first got into risk assessment. And you know there was a formalised way of doing things, a little bit different from food safety. It was. Uh, based on the OIE uh, approach, which is uh, uh, the one that the animal health guys use, it's you know you can see the similarities, but it's just structured a little bit differently. I don't know if you've had a play around with that sort of risk assessment framework. Yes, uh, assessment exposure, etc. Yeah, a little bit. So some of the work that I've done for FAO and uh, WHO has involved with been interacting. Uh, with uh, people that are more familiar with that framework. So mostly it's come through interactions with people that understand that that framework. One of the people that that I work with that that is, I think, quite familiar with that is uh, Marion Woolridge, 
uh, from uh, from the UK uh, who who works who uh, I don't know I don't know where she is in her career right now, but at one point she was doing a lot of those OIE style uh, uh, risk assessments. So yeah, so I'm, I'm at least passingly familiar with uh, the the tools and the techniques. And I, I, she probably kill me if I'm wrong, but I, I think she was retired, or I think mm. she has retired, uh, which is a, a shame. She's a, certainly a great uh, source of, you know, knowledge in in the UK anyway, mm-hmm. uh, if not globally. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. smart, smart lady. I think very well respected around the world. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, yeah, that sort of got my um, appetite for for risk up, really, and and uh, you know I think what I had always wanted to do as I'd, I'd always had a food safe uh, well not food safety bent a public health bent and um, you know my brothers and medics and um, you know I did what I uh, you know shouldn't do well I, I you know basically I made the choice not to follow them into medicine um, that's what I kind of wanted to do but I thought well that's a little bit too cliche and you know if <laughs> do that so I went to become a, to do vet instead but I think you know the, the public health uh, ethos is sort of has been there so um uh, there was a chance to to be a part of the uh, do a similar sort of role for the food safety authority or the the food side of MAF as it was then and then it went became the food safety authority in New Zealand which was mirrored on the uh, the UK FSA mm-hmm. and uh, yeah basically doing risk assessment on the on the food safety side which which kind of started me off on on that direction um, yeah that, I did a, a number of years with them. Uh, before coming to the UK to do the same sort of thing for industry because, uh, you know, I think working for government's all very well and good um, and, you know, we had a lot of fun, but uh, I, I, I wanted to try and see how we could apply risk assessment at a, at a practical level. So I was really excited when the, the role with uh, Unilever came up that was they were looking for exactly that, which is not not common to see within an industry context. Um, and, and you know, you knew that the products you'd be working on would be hitting the hitting the shelves. So that's kind of the real end of things, isn't it? You know, where uh, where you work that you do is, I mean, I know, I know government, of course, you know, you see the cons- may see the consequences if there's a disease incursion or something like that. But it just felt so much more immediate, so much more connected to. Uh, uh, to the consumer, at least, uh, to be working in a in a in an industry context where where the products would hit the shelves. But you know that's really interesting because I just and I, and I threatened I threatened that we were going <laughs> to go off off in a digression here. Just having having come back from ten days in New Zealand, of course, I am now an expert, and I'm going <laughs> to tell you about the country where you grew up. But as as it the- stands now, I mean, <laughs> things have changed a lot since I've been gone. You know, I don't recognize half of it anymore. Well, but tell but, me what you thought. Well, but so my perspective is, um, if I had to pick a government agency and a country. You could do a lot worse than um, MAF or Food Safety Authority in New Zealand right now. And so, yes, on the one hand, I appreciate moving from a government bureaucracy to a food industry where, yes, the decisions you're making every day um, can have a, uh, an effect. But on the other hand, you're moving from what to me struck me as an incredibly nimble 
light again the, the whole idea of you i mean i can i can really picture you sitting in coffee shops in wellington figuring this stuff out and this is you know one of the things that struck me about new zealand it, it is a small country and there is a bureaucracy but it is a very lightweight bureaucracy and there really does seem to there is an aspect to that culture which as an american is very appealing to me because it's it is a new country right and mm. and there and it, and it's small and and again lightweight is is the the and i i don't mean that in a derogatory no, way no. at all but very like it seems like there's a lot of freedom and flexibility. On the other hand, you move from that to what is uh, one of the biggest food country, companies, if not the biggest food company in the world, with a, uh, I, what I can, again, a very limited experience. And again, I, huge respect for Unilever and the folks that I know that work there. But on the other hand, you know, big companies have a soul crushing bureaucracy. So in, yes, in, in, on the other, on the one hand, you're moving to a situation where you have a more d- immediate impact. On the other hand, you're moving from what is a very lightweight, um, free and easy bureaucracy to one that could potentially could be soul crushing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good insight. And, uh, you know, probably a little bit what I discovered as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> but, you know, one thing now, of course, uh, you know, m- the as it's called now, the Ministry for Primary Industries in New Zealand mm-hmm. is a bigger. They've absorbed both what was the biosecurity side, the animal health, and the uh, the, the food uh, safety authority. They've absorbed both those into the one um, bigger a, you know agency again. Um, so I guess that was similar to the original ministry, but. Um, I kind of get the feeling that things have changed there as well. Uh, that. It, Perhaps that freedom is not quite as we had had it in those earlier days, but you, you, you've been there closer. So, uh, and, and as you say, I, I think you're right. The the opportunities to have an impact um, in you know it's the sort of in, in a small sea, if you like, are much more uh, open and available, and you're certainly not as restrained. Um, in that you, you get to do a lot more different things and you're not just sort of put into a pigeonhole and here's, here's where you have to, to run around in a circle, you know, only doing this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's true. And, um, you know, when, when I got to Unilever, initially it was actually more like a university than a, than mm. a corporate. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was working with great people, uh, Leon Goris, who was, again, there at the sort of beginning of, of micro-risk assessment, uh, he, he was my initial boss, and uh, you know we basically could work on interesting projects as long as it was we had a sort of a business sponsor or there was a business relevance and uh, you know again uh, that was also quite a nice time and but yes, I found out, which is exactly what you 're saying things didn 't move as fast as I thought they would um, and uh, you know that that also uh, the size of the bureaucracy uh, also matters whether it's a corporate or or a government. Um, but you know things things did hit the shelves. We did we did uh, you, you know you did see your products uh, being put out there that you had done work on. So that was good. It just perhaps took a little longer. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't. I think ultimately, you know. The business caught up with that sort of university culture and said, "Well, you know, we've got these scientists and we really need them focused." So uh, it became, um, you know, much more uh, over time uh, linked to the, the sort of corporate need, which I, uh, you know, I appreciate 
if the, if you're working in a corporate, that's that's what you should expect. Um, right, and, but at, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, and that and maybe those days are gone forever from from companies, but certainly that this whole idea that you that a company. Uh, has a campus where they have a bunch of smart people that get to wander around and think about interesting stuff that may eventually have some impact on the business or or may not, and that that's okay. Um, yeah, that the immediate connection to the bottom line, I think, has um, has become a lot more uh, become a lot stronger. I mean, I've seen it with uh, colleagues here in New Jersey that um, up just up the, the street in, in Homedale um, was an AT&T, essentially a research park, a university full of a lot of smart people that did all sorts of cool stuff with math and statistics and all of this stuff that may or may not have had an impact on AT&T's bottom line, um, but ultimately uh, went away because there was just this, this focus on, well, there has to be an immediate, there has to be a business connection and, and, mm-hmm. and again, Again, it, it, so not only is there a business connection, but then it seems like the the the, uh, the screws have been tightened down on that, so that, it, that the, the amount of time that it takes to go from some research idea to some business, you know, benefit is is moved from well, well, we don't really care if there's ever a business application to well, we'd like to see a business application in five years or ten years and or five years or one year or. What are you going to do for us next quarter? Um, which which has a horrible effect on on mm. research, right? Because mm. then you're yeah. just spending all of your time, kind of moving from one crisis to the next, or yeah. one, th- and you never get the time to really fully explore something or, or really, you know, develop things that that could have yeah. an impact on the bottom line in in ten yeah. years. And that that's yeah. a that's a real tragedy, I think. It is, and you know, I, I see the companies still struggling with that. You know, I was talking to someone the other day about the recent changes, and that they're, they're trying to they're trying to maintain what they used sort of their blue sky science or mm-hmm. uh, people in in a certain group. So at least I give them that. Uh, but they they keep sort of reorganizing and, and and trying to see how they fit and how they can bring them closer to the to the you know operational side of things. And, and I think every company is struggling with that. And, you know, I, I think things are you know, probably, I don't know, maybe it's got a little bit better in some ways in the sense that they are more business connected. But like you say, projects that suddenly you might be working on, uh, suddenly the business says, well, actually, we don't want to do that anymore. So it's not fundamental science. You, you may not be working on, on the fundamental aspects. And so suddenly you've got to switch the whole program. Uh, so sorry, we're not doing that launch. So basically, you scientists now need to go and focus on something else. So mm. how do you how do you get that balance? I don't know. I guess there's a whole lot of companies who are working out working that out. A lot of smart people who are you know, spending that time. But I, I think it's probably gone the wrong way as well. So yeah. A little bit too far that way. And, uh, and obviously, something must have made you decide that. Now was the right time <laughs> to uh, jump out into the the brave uh, the brave new oh, yeah. world of uh, food safety consulting. So so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that if you don't mind. Yeah, well, that is exactly that. That uh, it was a business change, uh, moving away from uh, the more risky food products. So they were basically getting rid of uh, cook chill type products, things that had a low margin. Uh, moving, you know, sticking with the the things that are bomb proof, like their stock cubes, uh, sauces and soups, you know, that have been cooked uh, to the hell, uh, and so you know, not a lot of challenge for for a food safety person. Uh, 
And there was a whole other part of the business, this home and personal care business, which is 50% of Unilever's uh, global uh, you know, sales is, is home and personal care products, you know, the Dove shampoos and uh, all, all the other bits and pieces, the deodorants, etc., um, skin creams, everything like that. So we, as a micro-risk assessment team, um, and I felt we had built up and you know, when, and I, I was leading that when I left. I felt I'd built this team now that was perhaps the best food safety risk assessment team in industry globally. You know, so you have this wonderful team, and then sorry, you've really only you've got to focus on home and personal care products now. You need to demonstrate value for um, for that part of the business. Food is no longer uh, that important or at least innovation in food is no longer that important. We're just going to keep changing the labels and the flavours and we don't need your expertise for that. How can you be useful in this other field? And, you know, I think the team has done a great job uh, in my last two years as I was there and, and since I know, you know, that they are doing a, a good job in, in pro- providing value for the water side of the business and for the home and personal care side of the business. So that's good. They have made the necessary changes, but at the end of the day, it didn't turn me on. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to follow your heart and say, well, you know, what's really important to you, you know, to me, which is, you know, food safety and, and, uh, uh, and even the public health side of things. Were the risks as great within the home and personal care product side? Not really. Um, so it's more about, you know, spoilage and rather than, than the safety side of things. So um, that's that's why I jumped at the offer of a, yeah, there was a voluntary redundancy package going and I saw that as an opportunity to, to do something different. And uh, I'm a consultant because there was nothing interesting as a job out there and, and, and I've found I've actually started to enjoy the consultancy. So uh, that seems to be something that suited me very well. Oh, that's 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 good to hear. Yeah, you know, the the I have over the years have become interested with personal care in part because of you know keeping up with what people like you were doing at Unilever, but also um, uh, Colgate uh, Palmolive has a, um, a like a, a campus like a, a research park uh, not far from uh, Rutgers, and I've worked with those people on uh, toothpaste safety and or, or toothpaste you know uh, stability microbiology and 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 some of those issues and with my own work on uh, soaps and uh, hand wash and stuff like that I've yeah. gotten interested and there, there really are some very there, there's a very interesting microbiology yeah. around that that is not necessarily fully developed in the literature although there's there's some stuff so yeah it's interesting but you're right I mean generally speaking those are low-risk products and especially if you take a company like Unilever where you know there's a uh, with good reason <clears throat> there's a huge aversion to risk right you have this incredibly valuable name and reputation and again i saw the same thing at colgate they did not want to do anything to damage that brand that brand was incredibly important to them and what that does is it it stifles to a certain extent it stifles innovation um and uh, you know and i saw i've seen it too with uh, col- uh, conversations with my colleague um uh, Alejandro Mazota, who was at, uh, well, who's been uh, around a number of places in the food industry, but most recently at Campbell's Soup, um, where the business, you know, the the majority of the profit is earned on canned soup, at, which yeah. is which is just going away as a market. And he had the opportunity to go with this um, 
upstart young company called Chobani Yogurt that gr- has been growing like crazy, but has also had um, some fairly well publicized um, uh, food spoilage issues, and it's sort of come back around with maybe some allegations. I don't know how closely you've been following this, but there was a, mm-hmm. an article. It was published in the in the peer-reviewed literature saying that uh, that it actually was a food safety event. And anyway, there's a whole lot of controversy around that. But again, Alejandro had a chance to move from uh, a, a very sort of buttoned-down corporate environment with not a lot of real innovation to Chobani, which has the, almost the opposite problem. There's just too much innovation and too much growth happening, and they needed somebody to come in and, and sort of put that put that corporate perspective to kind of I don't want to say rein in, but but at least uh, provide some some high level oversight to to kind of get things back under control. So so he, maybe he's found a place where he can he can still have that excitement. And it sounds like you have too uh, with uh, with this um, uh, with this uh, consultancy that you've developed. Yeah, I think it just gives you the chance to do a lot of the you know more interesting things. I mean, I know that you kind of also have to do what the client wants, but. Uh, mm. You know, generally around risk, anyway, they're you know interesting questions around uh, yeah, what's what's the best way to manage you know particular risk, or do we need to even manage a risk? Um, you know, one of my focuses is also being using risk assessment, trying to promote that as a way to to save money. You know, people think it's kind of this sort of uh, very academic thing that you must do, and, you know, to protect your consumers, and or even maybe people don't even a lot of people who, who perhaps don't even think that, but uh, uh, you know those who, who at least see the value, you know, perhaps just see it more from from the public health protection, but and, and miss out the bit that actually, if you do it right, you can uh, also save the company money. Um, you know, so a good example was I was working with a, a business to look at. Uh, coffee bean safety and, and roasting and whether that should be a CCP or not. And basically the sort of work that I did suggested, you know, actually if you're going to produce anything that is like, uh, that the consumer will recognize as coffee, it is going to be safe. You know, and putting a CCP in there is just going to add cost. Um, so, you know, I think you can do things like that or thermal processing, um, I know, I mean, I met Alejandro, you, who you're talking about, because when he was working for McDonald's and he came over to the UK to give a presentation to the Food Standards Agency here because um, they uh, McDonald's had put in a request to lower the time temperature for cooking in the UK for their burgers. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we did some risk assessment work. Uh, I was part of this advisory committee advising the, the FSA here. Um, and we did some risk assessment work on, on the back of that, looking at burger cooking, which did suggest you could reduce the uh, time from this sort of holy grail of 70 degrees Celsius, sorry for the North American listeners, um, to, <laughs> for two minutes to, you know, we could you could produce a safe product in, say, one minute. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, 70 degrees one versus 70 degrees two. Um, but uh, actually, you know, in terms of uh, quality of product and uh, and sometimes um, processing speed or uh, all those sorts of things, you know, you, it's a bit of a win-win. Yeah. You, can, you can both reduce reduce the temperature, produce a better quality product, and uh, usually a cheaper product. 
Well, that's the whole thing is you want to produce <clears throat> as inexpensive and high quality a product as possible that still is as safe as, you know, can be. So, uh, yeah, and it's, <clears throat> it's interesting you should mention coffee because that makes me think of tea and and, and I um, and which again will and we'll bring it back to Unilever because some of my so the, this issue of the safety of of brewed tea especially in this country in the US we drink a lot of iced tea especially in the south and they like it sweet with with lots of sugar and there has been some research done over the years looking at the risks associated with um, brewed tea products and and particular uh, Mike Serigliano who's a scientist at Lipton mm-hmm. which is which is part of Unilever right. yeah. has has looked yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Um, has has looked at this and um, <clears throat> Under the right conditions, uh, although coffee roasting, the roasting process may not need to be a CCP, boy, there are some potential microbiological risks around tea that make me, uh, they don't keep me up at night. Um, because it's not my business, but boy, uh, there are some, I mean, you can, you can grow E. coli, uh, at least generic E. coli in brewed tea relatively easily. And again, if it's not a problem, if you drink tea, like you do in, in the UK, like civilized people where you, you, you drink it hot. Um, but, but man, you get it cold and you put some sugar in it and you leave it around for a long time. And if you want to try this wacky, you know, process of sun tea, and you just happen to get some tea uh, that is contaminated with E. coli, pathogenic E. coli, or salmonella. And again, that may be a relatively low risk, but a probability, low probability event. But boy, that some of that can be quite risky. But it's good to know as a as a mostly a coffee drinker and not much of a, a tea drinker. And, and since I had this realization about the risks of cold tea. Um, if I do drink tea, it tends to be hot tea. Hot. Um, uh, that's good, but it's good to know that uh, that coffee is uh, it, the coffee roasting process does not need to be a critical control point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean the, the the herbal tea. I say herbal just again for your North American listeners, but it pains me. Um, herbal <laughs> is what we would say. Um, what, what what would you say? Herbal. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. The, the herb, herb tea. Um, <laughs> definitely, uh, you know, so, but, you know, I remember doing some work on, on chamomile tea and boy, that stuff was, was pumping out the pathogens. Mm. Um, you know, or at least, or at least the microorganisms, maybe not always pathogens, but, you know, certainly with the potential for pathogens to be there. And, uh, you know, so, you know, the hot water, uh, rec- you know, uh, infusion is 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 a is a critical point for for tea, and I think that was one of the points that I brought up again with the coffee side of things. Well, comparing the risk from coffee to tea, actually, you know, tea is uh, you know is a much more risky product, and was something we all consume quite uh, commonly, at least in the UK. Uh, um, as you say, it's hot um, without a problem. So, but yeah, I, I don't think I'd like to have it sitting around. Um, particularly if it had, if it was a cold brew as well. Do you guys cold brew sometimes, or is it uh, hot brewed and then cooled? Yeah, no, cold cold brew is is increasingly fashionable. Or we do this sun tea. Have you ever heard of this sun tea product where you no, basically not, not heard of you, that. you you put uh, water and tea bags in the sun <laughs> and oh, incubate oh, it? Basically, oh, that's great. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's just, yeah, I would not do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, talking about companies and innovation and tea makes me think of uh, some work that I've done uh, for the Harris Tea Company, which is a, a uh, company based in, I don't know if they're based in New Jersey, but they have a, um, a, a production facility in New Jersey looking at some innovative ways to control pathogens in some of these products. And so there is, you know, in, in the food industry, even in, even in as old and traditional a product as tea, um, as we begin to look at these um, uh herbal or herbal <laughs> products, however you say it, um, uh, you know, there are opportunities for innovation in terms of technology. So how much, uh, which, which makes me think of, again, back to your consultancy stuff, how much of what you get involved with is kind of looking at innovative technologies and how much of it would you say is just sort of good old fashioned, straightforward risk assessment if that's fair at question at the moment at the moment mm-hmm. good good old fashioned straightforward risk assessment and and i think it's 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 even with products either that are on the market or at least um maybe it's a new market for the particular um the company that's moving into it but uh nothing in that in that sense uh, you know I, i'm not i haven't seen any sort of radical technologies at this point um, yeah, hopefully, maybe that will come as as the business get, grows. But it seems that more people are yeah, just more interested in well, we we are, we are making this stuff, um, and if, and you know, we're seeing more uh, media interest or coverage, or um, you know, maybe this uh, we, we're getting some uh, literature information or even uh, feedback from our own testing to suggest that you know some pathogens may be. Uh, occurring at a very low frequency and you know really that's where they're trying to understand the risk of that you know so you know how do you deal with that yes salmonella's mentioned say for in green coffee beans and we all know from the production process that it's a you know you can see that it's potentially a risk and, you know you've got uh, the sort of conditions in which uh, coffee's fermented aren't exactly uh, hygienic ones and you know so you can see that the, the possibility so people are probably more chasing the work that I'm doing it's, it's more people chasing that the low frequency stuff but high consequence you know uh, trying to understand more you know the level of risk they're exposed to i mean so i think all the all the obvious risks, well, we cover those you know, as a company. Um, you know, the ones that nobody worries about, we're, we're probably not worried about, but there's, there's that sort of grey area where you're, you're talking about low-frequency events uh, that people are concerned about. So that's, that's probably more what I've been doing. Um, well, you know, and, and that's yeah. that's been one of my kind of talking points. And, in fact, when I was in... When I was in New Zealand, um, one of my talking points in in a couple of the the presentations that I give um, was that people in the food industry, I think by and large, do not understand. Well, I mean, you you know this. I mean, or maybe your experience is different. But by and large, they really don't understand numbers and they really don't understand probability. And yes, the risk might be low, but it matters <clears throat> whether it's one in a hundred or one in a thousand. And it matters whether it's one in a hundred, what, right? Mm-hmm. What one in a hundred servings, one in a hundred grams, uh, you know, one, one in a hundred batches. And then what matters is the, the, the multiplier, right? So, yeah. so again, one of my key talking points is if you have a low risk and you have a high number of servings, 
depending upon how many zeros you have associated with with either of those numbers, um, you may have what is a minuscule risk or what you, you may have is what it, what is quite a significant risk. And so you really have to look at what is the exposure of the company uh, in mm-hmm. terms of how many illnesses would you expect. And, and yeah, and again, this, this coffee um, – I'm sure is fascinating because without a doubt, I suspect that uh, salmonella is present in uh, green coffee beans because of how they're, how they're produced. And then the question is, okay, so the fermentation process, yes, it's unhygienic. I suspect it's also uncontrolled. And then, and so you get survival or you get variable survival, or who knows, you might even get conditions where you have growth. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you have to look at all of the, 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 the storage time. I and mean, we saw this with some of the work uh, that I did with, with Linda Harris around uh, almonds is that, yes, salmonella does not grow in almonds, but it survives. And it matters whether those almonds are at room temperature or whether they're in the refrigerator, which some people do, or whether they're in the freezer. And the best thing you can possibly do for controlling salmonella in in raw almonds, at least in terms of how you hold them, is to hold them at room temperature because they're going to survive the least. But some people, for quality reasons, um, you know, to prevent rancidity, may may freeze them, which does a wonderful job of preserving the salmonella. So I can imagine you're you're grappling with some of those same issues for coffee. Yeah, and uh, actually, there there ain't a whole lot of data out there about salmonella and coffee beans, Mm -hmm. and I thought there'd be more. But um, and actually, the population—one of the things that happens is the population over the fermentation process changes, and uh, and I think the conditions actually become less uh, acceptable for for pathogens like salmonella. So actually, I think you know, even the uncontrolled um, fermentation. And certainly the wet fermentation is, is, is better. But, um, yeah, the conditions are not uh, suitable uh, for, for pathogens like salmonella. They can survive and they can crop up again, um, you know, later on, especially if the humidity changes and sometimes with storage and, and transport, you know, from uh, foreign climes, uh, if they're not stored and transported properly, you can start to see um, uh, sort of gram negatives appearing back in, in, into the coffee beans, so into the green beans. So, yeah, obviously nothing's absolute, although the fermentation process helps. There's still that probability. I think you're right. You know, companies don't perhaps don't do the, a good job around the exposure side of things, so they don't sort of think you, there is a risk. Um, they don't know how to kind of uh, qualify or quantify that risk. Um, they don't know what the implications are. Uh, for them in terms of uh, you know, the, the units consumed or uh, the exposure to a consumer or the consumer group. They want to understand that side of things. And um, then there's the whole piece around, well, what's, what's acceptable? And it's really difficult to have that discussion. And I think that's what I love doing is, you know, is, is trying to have that bottom-out discussion of, uh, of what is, what's an acceptable level of risk to you, you know. Um, and, and, you know, you can't tell that to somebody. Uh, well, you, you you can give them an opinion, right? But at the end of the day, it's their company, their uh, decisions, and 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 the impl- and the consequences fall back on them. So you have to somehow guide them through to that uh, uh, 
position on deciding what's an acceptable level of risk for them. And, well, I, and that's a struggle for, for companies, I think. Yeah, and, you know, and that was one of the my real light bulb moments in this whole area of risk assessment and, and risk management, management was when I came to the realization that my job was to explain to them what the risk was, but that because there is no such thing as 100% safe and there's no such thing as zero risk, ultimately it had to be a decision that they had to make as to what level of risk they were willing to tolerate. And and again, and that conversation is played out again and again. And, and again, to just to talk about almonds for a minute, because I think it's, it's relevant, is the Almond Board of California um, – who who have funded a lot of the work in Linda's lab, including um, the almond risk assessments that that I've been a part of, um, was to their credit, they realized that this was an issue that they were going to have to figure out and that if they were going to do something like mandate that, that all almonds produced in the state of California be treated to a certain log reduction, which, which they did, um, they were going to have to use science to come up with that number and that no amount of risk assessors or scientists were going to tell them what that number was. Ultimately, that is a management decision. It has to do with what they are willing to to tolerate. And, and, and to their credit, they did it. And, and they decided that based on the best available data, that which again was in, in large measure collected through their efforts or through the efforts of Linda Harris, they decided that uh, California almonds should receive a four log treatment and a four log reduction. And, and so, uh, we looked at five, you know, we looked at variability around five and around six and around some of the commonly used treatments. And, and in the end, they decided that four basically gave a very low probability of a single case, um, from all the California almonds produced in a year. And they decided that that was for them, that number was, was the acceptable number. So, um, but, but again, a different group of people, uh, at a different time with the same data and the same analysis might come up with a different number. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, I, I appreciate that, that that is a, uh, ongoing challenge for you to try to communicate that to, to companies. But that, I think that's the thrill. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what I love about the job, you know, that, uh, uh, that these decisions need to be made, um, and uh, you know that you, you're helping. That's where that's where I see that you can really help. That uh, uh, you can sort of point them in the right direction of, of how to make how to make those decisions. So you give them some framework in which they can base that decision in, in at least a more um, robust and um, yeah. Uh, transparent manner, you know. So I think that's important um, to be able to, obviously, to, to be able to document that. So it's all very well to say, you know, we're a little bit concerned, we're concerned about this, um, you know. But I think to have that m- more fully documented and then, uh, you know, being able to use that uh, for for a risk, pull that risk assessment out and say, when when you're faced with a regulatory situation, um, captures all that thinking around both the risks and and the decisions around it. So. Yeah. So, so one of the one of the documents that I came across. I mean, there's a, a number of documents that maybe we could talk about that you've been an author on that that I've found to be very interesting and, and very helpful. But one that was new to me was a document that you have posted on your LinkedIn site um, entitled "The Role of Risk Analysis in Integrated Food Safety Management." And I love the the tagline here on LinkedIn. It says, uh, uh, "This is quoting you now." My rant on what's wrong with food safety management: how risk analysis 
and not 42 is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything, and how we need a food safety revolution. So, um, so can you say all that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Somebody did and it's on your LinkedIn site. So I'm going to attribute it to you. So we'll get back to, uh, we'll get back to, uh, the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit about why you think we need a food safety revolution. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I've come into this consultancy gig, and um, I find myself almost as a little bit of a um, an outsider, you know. And and I've been doing this work uh, obviously for Unilever for the last ten years, and obviously not all of it's been science. Some of it's been you know, people management and and so sort of drifted away a little bit from some of the science. But it's always been about, you know, risk and, and risk assessment. And that's always been the context in which I've worked. And then I come into the, you know, I don't know, I, I don't want to call it the real world because Unilever is the real world as well. But to the more perhaps, so within the UK, it's the, obviously the companies are a little bit smaller uh, in general. And, um, you know, it's it, it sort of, telling that the companies that I'm mainly doing work for at the moment still seem to be the multinationals. But the um, the SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprise, uh, are all, um, you know, focused still on the hazard, focused still on testing. Uh, obviously the audit, the latest audit, to making sure that, uh, you know, that they, that they pass that, um, that they have... Um, uh, sheets that sort of say, yes, well, here's my test results and therefore it's safe. Um, and that's the sort of basis on which the suppliers trust each other. And, and I feel like it's a foreign world and I feel like it's a world I don't belong. So I think my rant came a little bit from that. I found a, a sort of a, um, uh, somebody who, who, who felt a little bit the same way, uh, Joe Head, who's, who was sort of discussing this food safety revolution she's since sold out and gone back to uh, uh, working uh, for a company um, but the, I think generally that's kind of what I what I felt passionate about was it, the systems don't seem to be talking about risk these are all just talking about you know managing processes or managing hazards uh, or, you know, managing bits of paper and spreadsheets, and it's a world I didn't know anything about. So, uh, you know, I think that's that's the sort of background to uh, to why I, you know I wrote that and uh, was was saying how do we now um, you know integrate risk back into all our decisions around food safety. Uh, I was going to have a little read over the paper uh, since you said you wanted to talk about it, which I didn't do. So. Uh, if, if you want to pick out anything specific, please do. But that's that's the kind of um, the thinking behind it. Um, and I also got involved with, you know, there was a bit of a plug in there too. I got involved with a, uh, and am involved with a, a software company um, in Glasgow who who do this uh, risk product, Gale Risk, which is a very good tool using um, uh other tools that have perhaps been used in the past for occupational safety, the sort of bow tie risk diagram, mm-hmm. if you come across that. Yep. And using that to uh, basically uh, capture companies' risks, whether it be food safety or otherwise, but primarily my role is around the food safety side, and, and, and being able to capture and evaluate in a semi-quantitative fashion, and we can talk about semi-quantitative risk assessment if you like, but, um, you know, at least some 
transparent capturing of, of, of a risk assessment and then being a, a very good communication tool. So I, I was also trying to work out how we can link up suppliers uh, using such a tool because also in the UK, obviously, there's sort of Elliott review around horse meat and uh, I don't know how much if that's filtering through to the US about the, f- the food fraud side of things, but keeping um, trying to link up all those supply chain elements uh, and being able to uh, show risk management across um, a number of levels of supply is quite important. So, so that was also part of the um, the thesis. There was, you know, how do we um, do this in a sort of a linked up way, um, not just you know one company, each company doing its own thing, but somehow sharing uh, what are the the sort of main risks both across the big players, the manufacturers, but also down into the supply chains, so that we all. You know, are looking at the same sort of uh, uh, agreeing on the same sort of risks that are important or hazards at least, and then uh, some sort of risk assessment behind. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of things there that 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 then that leads us maybe to to talk about. Um, and you know, to me, it's it's astounding that you worked at Unilever for all those years, but never got involved in anything related to to audits. And I've gotten I, I've always been. I was tried to, lucky. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I've always tried to stay away from from that side of food safety because it just never resonated for me. Because it, it always it never really seemed. I mean, again, as a guy who is quantitative, quantitative, and who likes models and statistics. Um, I mean, I understood the value of, of audits, but it always, it never seemed to me to be really based on anything. And, and, and I think that that has been borne out as we've seen food poisoning outbreaks from companies that you know, only moments before the outbreak apparently passed an audit with a very high score. So um, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not convinced of the value of audits, or at least audits as they are currently implemented in in the, the food industry. Another thing <clears throat> that you said, or that 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 triggered a thought in my mind, is around this whole idea of testing. And I do have an interest in uh, microbial testing and the statistics around that. And I know you do too, from some of your uh, some of the work that you've done. And very often. And we've talked. I've talked about this before on the podcast with Ben. Um, very often, companies have testing program and they have micro criteria that don't really appear to be based on anything. And I've been approached by a, a couple of companies about how to take their testing program and put it on a more firm footing in terms of a, a risk basis. And unfortunately, I don't know whether I'm. Um, providing a, a quote that is too low or a quote that is too high or mm-hmm. if they just don't think I'm qualified because I've bid on a couple of those projects and and been unsuccessful. But part of my dilemma with it is I don't really know – I don't know of any – testing criteria really that are truly risk-based. A lot of it is just historical and, and, and it's based on, well, that's what we've done before. We did – I was part of a um, – uh, a National Academy of Sciences project reviewing the micro criteria 
for the the foods that are served as part of our U.S. school food lunch program, where where companies you know provide food into that program, um, and they, the 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 administrators of that program they they had a sort of a food safety crisis, and so their solution to what to do about micro testing was to poll all of the industries to find out what their standards were, and then just to take the toughest standard from each of those <laughs> and to say well, we're using the McDonald's standard or we're using the Walmart standard because that's the highest standard. Well, how is that risk-based? Well, we talked to the market leaders and we took the most conservative one. So therefore, that is risk-based. And on the one hand, I can kind of see how that's risk-based. But on on the other hand, that makes the, the, the truly quantitative risk assessment part of me want to just pound on the table and say, what are you stupid? Uh, I mean, so, so, and then, and then the other thing that you mentioned, and so there's a, there's a lot here to, to, to come back and and talk about is this whole idea of semi-quantitative risk assessment. I really, I understand the attraction without a doubt, but I am very concerned that if you start to mix quantitative and qualitative things, um, you can fool yourself. I mean, I've seen so many examples of these simple models where you rank something one to five and you rank something else one to five and then you multiply or you add or you divide and lo and behold, you come up with a ranking, but it's so, it is so dependent on how the decisions you make about what numbers you're going to use and how you combine them. And again, this is not, this is not an original thought from me. This is all stuff that I learned um, from paying close attention to any time Greg Powley said anything about Mm -hmm. Mm semi-quantitative risk assessment. So everything I know is all, is all cribbed. All errors are due to me, but all the original thought is due to him. But, but so I'm, uh, so yeah. And so I think the, the, maybe the through line, Through all of this, whether it's semi-quantitative risk assessment, whether it's uh, micro-criteria and developing real risk-based micro-criteria or its audits, is, is taking this food safety world that we live in now and trying to, and I think you and I share this vision, to try to move it to something that is more truly risk-based and this is, and I think this is the real challenge. How do you show that it's risk based, right? It's not. It's being something being risk based doesn't mean that it's numbers. I mean, having mm-hmm. numbers in it is a really good place to start, but truly showing how you are giving again giving the managers something where they can decide okay where where are we going to draw the line but let's let's make sure that we're drawing the line on something that is real not 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 numbers stacked yeah. on top of numbers most of which have a tenuous connection with reality right yeah no, I agree. And, you know, I, I call the risk assessment work I do, you know, I say it's qualitative with numbers, you know. Mm. So I'll, I will use numbers in that decision-making, you know, to sort of back up. Obviously, you need to use the data, and the data is usually about numbers. But, um, you know, but, uh, you know, it's it's not about having the, the fantastic model either. So, you know, we can talk about, you know, I'll come back to the semi-quantitative stuff. But, you know, equally you can jump into a full quantitative model and think, oh, that looks nice. You know, it's got all the flashy uh, 
uh, simulations and uh, you know it seems to be capturing uh, very little you know, uncertainty but you know it's very difficult to jump into that and to always uh, analyze at least uh, you know all the assumptions behind that i know they should be clear so they aren't always clear um you know and it's all very well to do that but at the end of the day you still have to make that decision based on risk so i think the the qualitative reasoning uh is is such an important part of whatever you're making a decision about, um, and you know even in the, quanti- those, the in the nice quantitative risk assessments, you still need to to have that as well, um, and and a little bit you know you're not going to get in in companies doing you know very complex risk assessment models. Um, and therefore, I really value the use of, of that sort of qualitative approach. And, and it's my first step to any problem, you know, so that we sit down and you just talk, you know, run through the sort of codex risk assessment steps, understand the risk on a qualitative level, bring in the data so that you're at least presenting that, looking at worst case at this stage, you know, making a sort of a decision on that basis if you can, or, you know, maybe you need more quant- uh, more quantitative modeling tools. So starting off with that sort of qualitative stuff, you have to do that. The the semi-quantitative, um, and I don't perhaps the word is wrong as well, so there's sort of matrices that you build up. Uh, you know, yes, I am aware of the criticisms, but actually for smaller companies who... Um, you know, perhaps want to look across a large number of risks. As long as you kind of get your, uh, you know, your, your, your probability axis right, so you kind of differentiate. Well, you know, if we mark something on one, what does that mean? Um, so getting getting that sort of uh, uh, the axes right in terms of probability and consequence. So very very describing your x and y axes of the matrix. And then not being too complicated about the math, so just saying, you know, one times three or something like that instead of getting into some sort of complex formula that doesn't relate to the actual risk. And I, and I think those matrix-based approaches can be useful, uh, but it's like everything else. If you don't build it with, you know, transparently and with, uh, you know, using good science, in a robust manner, then you're going to get complete rubbish. But if you build it well, you can have something that's useful. And I think that's always where we come back to. Is it useful? Is it robust? Um, that's that's kind of my benchmark, not, not whether it's a, a qualitative or a semi-quantitative or a full quantitative risk assessment. Hello. Hello. The only thing we might get is my child breaking into the room going, Hey, what? Poo-poo head. <laughs> uh, oh. Father, I'm not a poo-poo head. <laughs> well, I think I've just accepted that I am a poo-poo how, head. How, how old is your son? I've got 10 and a 7-year-old. Oh, good, good. It ages. doesn't matter which one. They're both equally abusive. Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh, but, so you know, we were we were right in the middle of a really good uh, 
discussion. Yeah. So, so we were talking about audits, about risk-based micro criteria, about semi-quantitative risk assessment and, and this whole matrix approach. And I, I guess my, my only concern, and, and I did, I did actually did some thinking about this recently because I, I had, and you, you, maybe you'll appreciate this. Um, so I was at a conference in Finland that was around the future of HACCP. And, and the question that I was nominally tasked to answer is, is HACCP risk-based? And, and my answer was yes and no, depending upon how you, how you, so either way I'm right. Right. But, but, um, so certainly, um, critical control points, uh, I would say, and our understanding of them and how we manage them, I would say that for the most part, those are risk-based, but that the hazard analysis part of HACCP, which is really a a semi-quantitative analysis, um, is not at all risk-based and that you can fool yourself into thinking that you're, you're doing a good job of managing your hazards, um, if you if you fail or if you miss if you have some fundamental flaws in that that hazard analysis. But anyway, any I think any of those topics, um, re, you know, audits and how we make them more risk based, uh, risk based micro criteria uh, or or semi quantitative risk assessments and the you know that matrix. Um, I mean, I'm very I'm very interested. I mean, I I don't want to I don't want to disparage any of them, but I guess I would say you know at the at the start. I'm I ha- my my uh, uh, a philosophy or my approach or my mindset going in is one of skepticism. Right. For what? For all of it? Or for anything? Any any or all of those? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and I guess to maybe to put it more in a more useful context for you to react to, I, I'm 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 assuming that you share some of that. But how do we how do we move forward? How do we take this food safety world? that we're stuck with that's composed of audits, that's composed of micro criteria that might not be risk-based. We have risk managers who, you know, who don't, I mean, and, and don't and not, not, and, and shouldn't necessarily have to become risk assessors. How do we move that world to a world that where, where at least I think you and I think it needs to be in terms of being well and truly risk-based and, and well and truly quantitative? Yeah, million dollar question. Mm. Um, how do we move them? I mean, and you know, I, I've spent ten years trying to move Unilever in some respects as well. You know, and realizing that it's so hard to turn around that, but you know, those big tankers, and you know, then you've got the food industry and the way they do things. I, you know, I, is it going to change quickly? No. Um, you know, is it going to be a few people? No. Is it? It's going to. It's going to take time. And um, uh, maybe more crises as well. You know, when people realise things aren't working um, the way you know that they imagined they would. Um, uh, how much more? How much more damage do we need to do to to realise that? Um, yeah, I, it's sort of individual. Um, acts of bravery mm. <laughs> are, are quite are quite important, I think. And you know, I'm working with one retailer here a little bit, and uh, who's, uh, you know, I have to hold my head out to them. They're a small player. Um, they don't. Um, uh, they have a sort of a, a UK uh, business, but they're not a UK based retailer, and they don't get any support from uh, the sort of head office. 
and they've d- they even just have a new uh, quality team who has only been in the, have only been in the job a year or so. Before that, all the buyers did all the spec setting. Uh, so mm. you, know, you can imagine that's a, a recipe for for disaster. But yeah. they, uh, you know, I've, I'm in working with them a little bit now. They had a company who was help, well, they have a company who was helping them choose what to test and 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 what those specs should be. But um, they've basically taken that brave step of saying we think we're spending too much on testing. We don't really understand our risks. Um, we want to understand those better and manage those better. Uh, and, and you know, for a retailer to do that's pretty hard because you've got so many, level, you know, so many suppliers, so many products. And where do you begin? I mean, it's so much easier if you start with a with a manufacturer, and particularly if you're not manufacturing a whole lot of different products. You know, putting those examples out there, um, I think, is would is what we need to do. You know, we need to show companies, and I think we have to go back to that thing we talked about before. Saving money, you know, mm-hmm. it's what makes companies do things, make differently. You know, um, you know, if they get by on the level of risk management that they currently do now, in the way that they've done things, and they don't have a problem, are they going to change? There's no incentive to change. So, you know, either they have a problem, or we can convince them, you show them that actually changing saves money. Well, and, and, and is it is it is it a matter of saying if you if you if you change this you'll save money, or is it more a matter of saying, well, look, you're spending this right now. Let's figure out how to spend the same amount of money but get more value out of it, right? Is that an easier sell, or no, because I, I, I worry, yeah. yeah, I worry about selling it on saving money because on the one hand that makes sense, on the other hand. That that sounds like you're giving you're losing safety, right? Yeah, but it's not. It's just right. wasted money at the right. moment, right? So right. I don't. I think um, it's easier to sell if you can say we will demonstrate that you will, um, you know, come out of this so you know so many more dollars. You know, it's, it's going to cost you so much less. You know, on a dollars per annual annual basis with so, the, yeah. with the same with the same degree of risk, or even maybe yeah. uh, a lower risk. So yeah. so you save money and you lower the risk. That's that should be the aim. Yeah, I think right. that's the why, well, and it's not always going to be the case. You know, I mean, I'm being a little bit. Um, uh, optimistic that every time you do more, you know more risk assessment, you're going to save money. That's not always going to be the case, but there must be so much wastage um, the way that the current system is done. And and you're looking at companies now also around the audit frequency and the different number of different audit plans. I know that um, they're trying to sort of make those a little bit more. Uh, you know, there's efforts there with GFSI, I think, to, to sort of bring them all under, you know, more common umbrellas of, of audits and not having to repeat so many audits for different um, buyers, et cetera, et cetera, so that you're not duplicating that. But I think, I don't think they've got anywhere near far enough um, on on that journey. So I, I, I pretty much find it, would find it difficult to see how, if you don't take that, if you do take a risk, based view to uh, your food safety management systems i fail to see how you won't save money but i'm you know i could be proved wrong <laughs> but i'd like to try right <laughs> I'd like, I'd, i reckon i reckon that uh, we can make that argument 
And I think it really is the only way that you're going to make change, unless you have more crises. Well, you know, well, that's not something we all really want to do, uh, to have. Um, you know, sort of, I mean, generally the industry gets it right most of the time, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, crises don't come along that often. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen to the UK fallout from the uh, food fraud stuff, but uh, we, we shall see. I asked you before, that's not hitting the US um, the food fraud thing, the Elliott review. That's not that's not a big uh, big news item over there. Well, yeah. So the uh, Elliott review is doesn't mean anything to me, but I think I think okay. certainly we'll we'll look it up and link to it in the show notes. But no, food fraud is actually uh, a very important topic. And in fact, just recently, I gave a distance presentation to some public health uh, folks uh, at a conference in Las Vegas around this issue of food fraud. And and no, I mean, certainly food fraud is very important than the melamine um, uh, melamine issue in China hit us uh, big time. Um, the, the horse meat uh, issue has gotten some coverage in in barf blog and in food safety news um, so no i mean but but so so and again uh, I know uh, uh, John Spinks at Michigan State University has been a real leader in the u s in terms of food fraud mm-hmm. so so traceability and food fraud are important issues but no so tell me about this uh, this Elliot report well that 's off the back of the horse meat uh, right. scandal as well, so he was just the the professor who was chosen to 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 look into it. So I think he's published an interim, and I think the full report is also now available. Um, so I should I should know that. But, uh, uh, yeah, it, 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 certainly have a look at it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's... I mean, there wasn't anything when I looked through the interim that isn't, doesn't sort of make sense about uh, trying to simplify the supply chain and, mm. you know, uh, you know the, it's just become too complex. And, and how do you, you know manage then the risk better from from your suppliers well yeah obviously one of the ways not not to have you know such a complex network and and i'm not sure how well that's going to play trying to simplify things i mean i know there's this sort of local uh there's a real keenness for sort of local produce as well and uh you know people somehow feel that that's safer and you know i think you've talked about that sort of stuff before on your uh, food safety talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and, it's, and that, it's, that's the danger that you know people think, well, we'll shorten the supply chain and therefore everything's going to be safer, and that's not going to be the case either, is it? So well, and it's it's necessary. easy. It's easy for some expert, for some pardon me, academic expert. <laughs> I guess I can I can pound on other academics, right? Um, to say uh, or some expert report to say, well, simplify your supply chains. Well, of course, of course. What food company wouldn't want to simplify its mm. supply chains if it could? But but then they have to hit certain quality specs and they have to hit certain safety specs and um they they're you know they're looking yeah so given everything else of course uh, what company wouldn't want to simplify their supply chains but it's hard to that's an easy thing to say and it's i mean and i don't need you know better than me you work for big food companies it's a it's a lot harder to actually do right Mm -hmm. Mm Yeah, and I think we should be able to manage. I think we just need better tools to actually, and this is a little bit back to the risk analysis rant and the role of, you know, I think we just need better tools to help manage that complexity rather than trying to to dumb things down. Um, 
Right. I yeah, I agree 100%. It's not it's not a, I mean yes, it's simplify where you can, but where you can't or where where you can use you know, tools. I mean, we have incredible tools at our disposal now with computer technology. Uh, and unfortunately, in many cases, and we're learning this in the U.S., and I suspect it's the same elsewhere, um, that traceability is 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 a hor- horrendously difficult problem, in part because um, we have no unified system for tracking food ingredients, right? I mean, the the US FDA says, uh, and the USDA too, I'm sure, says one step forward, one step back. So I need to know who I'm buying from and what goes into that product, and I need to know who I'm selling that product to. And and I may have a computerized system for doing that, but the, the, the backward connection and the forward connection um, to other companies are based on their computerized systems, which may be a completely different system. And so you're left with these bits of computerized systems that are tied together at the interfaces with paper, right? Yeah. And this is, a, you know, what I was trying to do with the Gale Risk stuff was sort of say, how do we use a software tool that talks up and down the supply chain? And, and a little bit, this is, uh, again, the food safety revolution that Joe Head was interested in, was yeah, developing those sort of tools. Uh, so that we're not just passing bits of paper between ourselves as we send food to each other, mm-hmm. um, which you know ultimately don't uh, maybe not necessarily mean a lot in terms of risk, but also don't you know uh, maybe also open to to fraudulent use as well. So um, yeah, I think those sort of tools um, are important, um, and I, and I think you know to be fair to Elliot, I don't think. Uh, this Elliot review, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure he's saying simplify, simplify. I think he's talking about, uh, you know, how to manage, gather better intelligence, um, and how do you do that from a um, sort of a, a crime fighting point of view. Um, so he, his his sort of things are more to do with uh, you know detection. Um, and and he's also got some review. He's also got some recommendations here about improving audits um, to reduce burdens. Uh, so I'm just sort of having a quick flick through some mm-hmm. of those now. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, you know he's got a section on audit processes, um, reducing the number of, of announced audits, which I think is uh, a good mm-hmm. thing. Replacing them with unannounced, yep. those sorts of uh, things. Um, yeah, well, if somebody if somebody fails an announced audit, that is a indication there's a real problem. But absolutely, I think uh, unannounced audits are key to that. On the other hand, I can certainly appreciate that there are too many audits, and that's what GFSI is supposed to be addressing. Right? Is is we need mm-hmm. to uh, sort of have uh, one set of audit standards, and different companies can do that. But that we need to, uh, yeah. You, I mean, from what I hear from my colleagues in the industry that work in in plants, is you know you're either preparing for an audit, you're having an audit, or you're dealing with an audit, and and that is that is an ongoing process with. Especially if you manufacture for multiple companies, you could you could be getting you could be getting multiple audits per month. Mm. Yeah, which is just it is crazy. Which is and crazy. Then, yeah. And then if you go back and look at the basis of that audit, is it based on risk? As you say, no, not always. Always some things. There's elements of it probably that that are, but uh, in general, it, you know, it's it's been reduced to that sort of uh, well. 
I don't want to call it a tick box because I'm sure auditors will get upset. But you know, it's a it's a list of things that they need to uh, you know to be assessed against. And and I think you, obviously you do have to simplify things, but make them based on risk for sure. Um, right. And, and and bring those linkages in and explain them and have them uh, transparent. And I think that's we lose we lose the transparency as well in terms of why we do things. Yeah. But there is no. I, I can't answer your question. How do we? How do we? How <laughs> what do, kind of a consultant we, are you? How do we solve the world's problems? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I, I was all so easy at the New Zealand coffee shop. <laughs> it was. Yeah, maybe we just need to get the get the gang back together or something. We're, we're getting the band together. Hey, speaking of, speaking of getting the gang back together, are you going to be at IAFP? Uh, I am not going to be, and, and this week I am about to free up my. Um, uh, hotel accommodation, which of course, if this podcast was going out live, you could then somebody might say yes. <laughs> tell me when that is. Um, but yeah, I will have to cancel my uh, hotel booking because I haven't found a, a wealthy sponsor, Don. And uh, uh, oh dear, if yeah. only we recorded this podcast earlier, John. I'm sure one yeah. of our one of our many millions of listeners would, or they we could we could fund a Kickstarter to get you. To, yeah, maybe that. Would, <laughs> to that that would really, you know, be uh, telling, wouldn't it? Oh, <laughs> how, how many people if, would put forward to that one? If, if, um, only, if only. So I do have to send my apologies. Oh, and, I'm sorry uh, to hear that, but I certainly uh, understand uh, now that uh, you're you're um, uh, footing foot, footing the, the the price of all of that. I certainly understand that uh, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah. And You know, my hope is that the business will be doing well enough next year that uh, you know I can actually just say, yeah, let's do that. Um, but in the meantime. You know, I've been turning up to the IAFP European uh, conferences, which mm-hmm. I've talked to you at, I think, both times now, or at least last the last mm-hmm. one you were there. Yep. And uh, well, so and, that, and next year, turn, next year's going to be Cardiff, so that's a cheap date, right? That's a train ride for you. That's a chain, train ride for me. Yeah, that's <laughs> good. And you know, it's turning into a good conference, actually. Um, Thanks. I, I really enjoyed it last year of oh, this year, and. Uh, you know, I think it's it's a it's a nice size. Uh, you, we're getting um, enough of you guys coming from the US, which I think is really useful and really helpful. If it was just the Europeans talking to each other, it would not work for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so nice to have uh, good representation, both from the IFP organization, uh, but also yeah, the, the you know, industry or government uh, from the US as well. So that's. That's uh, and academics from the U.S. So you know, I think that's that's vitally important. And yeah, so uh, it's it's a smaller meeting and it's very intimate. Um, you know, IAFP uh, obviously North America is is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, you know, it's still amazing how intimate it seems when you do go there and how you just keep bumping into people you know anyway. So uh, uh, that's not a negative, but uh, you know, I, I certainly have enjoyed the uh, the sort of uh, yeah, higher level of uh, the smaller numbers at, at, at IFP Europe and, and the intimacy that that sort of brings. So. Yeah, well, and and it's good that I mean, there, I think that that conference, the European conference, really does 
fulfill a role uh, for folks that uh, you know that that don't have the time or don't have the resources, or maybe it's just a you know it's a it's a lousy time of year for Europe, which apparently seems to take their summer vacations very seriously, as opposed to us in the U.S., who who many of us don't ever seem to ever really take a real vacation. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so so having something in uh, in May um, in Europe it probably works for a bunch of reasons. So well, I'm I'm glad I'm glad to hear. I'm sorry to hear you won't be joining us in Indianapolis, um, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, that, you, well, and I know that you have been uh, attending the European meeting and, and uh, hopefully uh, things will work out and I can go to Cardiff right now. My plans are, are definitely to, to attend that. So. Mm, yeah, it's a great city, and uh, you know it's always. And so I must say, anybody who's thinking about it would uh, definitely recommend, uh, you know, adding it to their trip list if they can. Um, so yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you there. Maybe next year at IFP uh, North America. I'd mm-hmm. certainly love to connect with all the, the New Zealanders. You, you said you met up uh, with my friend uh, Roger Cook, and uh, when you were in New Zealand mm-hmm. at MPI, so he's. Uh, you know, that tends to be the only place where I catch up with them. Or occasionally, mm-hmm. I get back to New Zealand. Uh, we have a we manage to catch each other briefly. Um, yeah, it's, and it's a great uh, great opportunity to uh, you know just network with people around the world. Um, yeah, all the Fonterra guys from New Zealand as well. That's uh, you know, although I noticed that they sent somebody to to uh, Budapest as well, which is good. Oh, it's good, good to see. From New Zealand, that's uh, that's that's a good commitment. Yeah. yeah so have indeed. fun. Thanks. Have fun, and uh, it's your it's your swan song, I guess, as well. That's right. You're going to miss a hell of a party. Yeah. <laughs> president's president's reception is going to be good. But yeah, uh, and that's you know what 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 special thing have you got planned? Because um, you know I remember that we had the caipirinhas uh, from the Brazilian crowd is that right the cocktails have you got something special i i I do and i don't know when this episode is going to air but but we'll uh but i'll announce i'll announce it here um and and maybe it will be uh it'll come out before the annual meeting i don't know we have um so as i'm recording this we have two episodes already recorded one with ben and i before he went on vacation and then one two weeks ago that I recorded with Mike Batts, um, um, and both of those need to air before this one. Um, and 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 we're, I'm, we've been really slow getting them out, but we've but so hopefully this will come out before uh, the annual meeting. But if not, it'll be around the time of the annual meeting. And uh, yeah, so for those that are listening to this, the president's the president's reception. The theme is um, uh, beer, bourbon, and barbecue. So we yeah. we will be having beer. We will be having bourbon, and we'll, we will be having a number of. Uh, we'll have, a, I think, bacon wrapped shrimp, and also um, uh, ribs, uh, barbecued ribs, uh, as well as a couple of other uh, special treats. So, um, so that's what you'll be missing at the president's reception. But, but no worries, we'll uh, we'll, we'll catch up, and, and we'll have beer and barbecue and bourbon another time, John. Mm, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I'd probably go for the scotch, you know, but the ribs, the. Ribs Ribs are the best thing that you guys have, you know, best food that you guys have ever come up with, or any anybody globally. You know, I mean, well, it's the best thing out of North America, or anything. Ah, <laughs> oh, you know, that's you, you've almost got me. Uh, I can hear your mouth watering here. Yeah, I'm almost booking that plane ticket now. <laughs> 
but uh, you know, unfortunately, yes, we can, we can, I can probably find them a little bit closer to home. But uh, yeah, and that's that's one great piece of cuisine that uh, you guys have given the world. Well, baby back, baby back ribs. Well, well, thank you, thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> Along with those burgers that you don't cook that well, you know, which you know, I notice you've been talking a lot about that lately. Uh, yeah, it never, never seems to go out of uh, out of style uh, yeah. to to talk about uh, undercooked burgers. Yeah, ben, and Ben has a project that we talked about recently on actually the episode I think that just released. He talked about a little bit about this uh, where he his uh, his folks go in and, and talk to servers about uh, risk and and things like that. So yeah, interesting uh, interesting times for for food safety and undercooked burgers. Although I prefer mine well done. Yeah, well, you know, it came it came into the UK as. Well, and I was threatening to get involved at one point, and that didn't happen. Um, you know, in the sense that the, there's a few of these gourmet chains, particularly in mm. London, who like to do that as well. Mm. And uh, they basically the legislature, uh, the, the, the sort of basically the, the public health council took them to well, basically tried to shut them down, and then they they appealed to the court. And and I think because. You know, it's more of a it was more of a legal issue rather than a food safety one. Of course, that's what they're concerned about at, at court, not food safety. Um, and uh, you know, they basically got an agreement to you know they could con- could continue doing what they were doing, which you know is just pretty you know potentially dangerous. Although they had a very good, uh, um, they're, they're talking about this um, uh, sear and shave technique. Uh, here a bit, and the food standards agencies looked a little bit at that, where they take off the outer, uh, you know, contaminated surfaces, and then um, mince up what's left. Of course, you've got the potential, I guess, for cross contamination and all that sort of thing. But you know, potentially it could work, right? Huh. Uh, that you just sear off all the bugs from either side and the, and the edges, I guess, and then just mince all that up. Well. Yeah, the I guess it depends on the order that you do it in, right? So you have to uh, you have to to sear the outside before you tenderize it, needle tenderize it, or before you chop it up. I mean, theoretically, that would work, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, nobody does any tenderizing needles here. I mean, they've really? talked about it. I mm-hmm. don't think so. I mean, I, I heard your number sixty-three. But mm-hmm. You're talking about it. And it's a big, big thing. But I don't. Yeah, it's, it doesn't seem to be as as big a thing here. But maybe I'm wrong. But yeah, that that's one idea for the for the raw burgers, and I guess that could work as well. So the FSA are looking into that. Um, but I was also interested in you using thermocouples, and you, you seem to be negative on these sort of tip thermometers. And I'm thinking, am I? My behind the times using a tip thermometer. Uh, is, is there a problem with those? I was interested to. Well, no. I think it's just that Ben and I are are nerds, and we would rather have a, a more expensive right. one. But but uh, I mean, no. The, I mean, the tip sensitive digital thermometers are the are the way to go uh, for sure. But I just I prefer like a, a thermo pen, which is probably. You know, an order of magnitude more expensive than what <laughs> most people would would pay. So most people are looking for a ten dollar thermometer and not a one hundred dollar thermometer. But uh, you know, it, it all depends on what uh, you know what your budget is and, and how much you care about food safety. And of course, yeah, I talked about it in in various episodes. I talked about the eye grill, which is the, my Bluetooth uh, uh, yeah. thing that syncs with the iPhone or the iPad. So. <laughs> You're Mr. Technology, aren't you? Well, you know, everybody needs a hobby. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, you know, other crazy things that the, the, the UK people are doing here, and we've had a lot of Campylobacter from seared livers, poultry livers, I mm-hmm. think. Whether they've used duck, chicken, or goose, I'm not quite sure. But they were, um, you know, making pate out of these uh, out of livers that have hardly been cooked at all. So they'll just sear the outsides and throw them in. And of course, livers and a nice uh, sort of repositories of uh, Campylobacter, not just on the external surfaces. So uh, there have been quite a few cases uh, in the UK on that. So all these sort of new cooking methods. No, they're always interesting. They always bring up new challenges for us, don't they? So. Yeah, well, and, and it's actually speaking of Campylobacter and chicken livers, we, we had an outbreak uh, here in the U.S. back in, in 2012 uh, with that as well. So it's, uh, that's, a, that's a, uh, certainly a uh, problem on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's anything else funny you want to pick out about <laughs> Well, we didn't. I'm okay because I'm a New Zealander. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think as uh, as we say in the in the in the business, that's a show. I did promise um, in the, uh, uh, the the emails that we shared before that we were going to have to talk about uh, Doctor Who and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was that uh, reference to the number forty two. Uh, but but uh, we didn't yeah. we didn't get to that. But uh, so what? Do you, so what, well, while we're so I guess we're officially now in the in the after dark portion of the show where we don't have to be completely serious. So so what do you think about? Uh, we'll start. So I guess I should say, do you are you a fan of uh, of Doctor Who? Do you do you, do you follow the show? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I wouldn't say that I follow every episode, but I'm certainly a fan, and uh, you know, I certainly you know the Christmas specials they do and things. You know, it's. I think it's just great that the franchise, if you call it that, is still alive, um, and they keep reinventing themselves. And you know, I do remember the old ones uh, hiding behind the sofa, you know, childhood fears <laughs> of Daleks. Oh, you know, that's great. You know, that just brings... So, you know, I think there always will be, you know, a part, uh, you know, of me that it, it harks back to, to Doctor Who. Uh, yeah, so I think it's I think it's fantastic. So, uh, so what do you think about Peter uh, Peter Capaldi as the new Doctor? Um, I haven't had enough, enough time. I saw, you know, one program. So, you know, again, my I dip in and out now, so I'm not... 
an aficionado. I know you guys watch a lot of TV, um, <laughs> you know, from listening to your podcast, right? I'm like, how do they spend so much time watching TV? Because I just don't get that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really spend that much time. I, yeah. I think, God, can I get a job as a university <laughs> professor? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's that, a great that, gig. It's a great I gig. can watch all these shows and I can talk about these and, and, uh, and um, now that I, you've also cleared one thing up for me, what the difference between After Dark and the normal podcast is, we well, talk about things less seriously, and I thought that was all the time. <laughs> well, that was like I have a I have one I, of my one of my graduate I, students who just started listening, and and she she was just in my office the other day ranting about you guys never get to the point. It takes you so long to get to the point. So it's like, well, that's. That's, that's that's but it's a, but it's a natural conversation, right? It's just it's whatever is on our minds, and sometimes we're more distractible than other times. So no, I love it. You guys are doing a, a great job. So oh. I'm a big I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you, so, John. Um, I just like like I normally say, I've got to find a um, a car journey as a good excuse to listen to a, to an episode because it does take that long to get. Well, you, hey, you had a train you had a train trip <laughs> and today. today. I listened to sixty three. Oh, on the train, God so, bless yeah. you. <laughs> That's great. And um, I was meeting with Bizan Porkamalian. Oh, very good. Uh, yes, from McDonald's. Yes, and yes. He said to say hi. Oh, uh, hi back. What a great so, man. I, I uh, he's he's fantastic. I I get to see him every year at the McDonald's uh, uh, food safety meeting in in Chicago. So yeah, what a what a great guy. Yeah, and he can talk. He was the one who made me a little late for uh, for our podcast here. <laughs> I that does not. I said, I've got to. I've got to go. I've got to get that two o'clock fast train, and I'm like, uh, you yeah, know, pushing it a little bit, and uh, just pushed it too far. So. Oh no, no worries. So we'll, 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 we'll blame him for that. But he he did say hi, and it was a, yeah, we had a nice lunch together. So it, yeah. in McDonald's, in the head office, <laughs> I have a lovely McDonald's in in the head office. Everybody's sitting there chowing down McDonald's. It's fantastic. Oh, very good. Very good. Well, right. well th- thanks again, John. I really appreciate you being on the on the podcast. Um, uh, I will uh, I will get this uh, audited, uh, edited, the audio edited, and then I'll get the show notes done, and it'll be up, uh, but probably not for a while yet, because like I said, we got two more ahead of you in the queue, and so I don't know, maybe around the time of IFP or a little bit after, perhaps. So, and I can certainly give you a, a shout out when when we're we're close to uh, uh, close to to posting it. Yeah, well, um, gosh, yeah, you're, you're, you're popular, you see. Everybody's queuing up to have a chat. <laughs> Not so much, but thanks. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure, Don. It's always good to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's felt like a you know an extended chat at a, at a meeting where you've normally got other uh, duties to go and do. So it's, uh, it's been a nice, nice chance to have a catch-up. Good. Well, thanks. Thanks. And thanks for, thanks for taking time out of your, of your busy day to, to chat. I know it'll be very interesting to, uh, to our listeners to get to hear from a different, a different perspective and, and, and uh, to hear your thoughts on so many things that we talked about. Okay. Good one. All thanks, right. Tom. Take care, John. Yes. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.